morning, Woods Edge. I hope your summer is going well. Gail and I are in Spain right now. We spent a few days doing mission work in Madrid, and then we met our children who live in Israel. We, we met, we've met them in Spain, and we are spending a week with them, and that's great for us. This morning, John Harrington is gonna speak. John is one of our executive pastors, and he is over church planting at Woods Edge. John and his wife, Angela, come to us from the Austin area. They have moved here in June, although John started before that as part of Woods Edge. And we are so thrilled to have John and Angela Harrington as part of our team. Would you please give a warm welcome to John Harrington. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? I always love worship at Woods Edge. You guys, uh, there are several things that you do awesome around here. When you're new, you're always picking up on what are the things about a particular congregation. And you guys are, among other things, worshipers. And I think that is a really cool thing because the Lord said... Be still and know that I am God and I will be exalted among the nations. Exalted among the nations is about worship. And so we're going to be worshiping the Lord throughout eternity. And you guys are really warming up well for that. So uh, I'm really grateful to get to speak to you this morning. And, and uh, just... Um, Grateful for the privilege of serving with you to see our city change with the gospel. So uh, uh, turn with me in your Bibles, or you can watch the side screens you, you want to, to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. And let's all stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 6. It says in verse 1, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah was given a tough assignment. He witnessed the rise of dreaded Assyria and the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, that was 10 of the, the tribes right there that were gone, that were wiped out, as well as a steep moral decline in what was left of Israel. In Isaiah 6, he had a vision where he was in the very presence of God, and God says, who will go for me to preach? And Isaiah says, pick me. 
Then God gives him the bad news. I'm picking you, but this is the assignment. Nobody's going to listen. In fact, I am going to chop down Israel like a terebinth or an oak until all that's left is a stump with a little of the seed of the Holy One left. That's your assignment. So, by chapter 49, Isaiah has felt the full force of this assignment. From the text, notice five things about Isaiah at this point in the story. Number one is Isaiah had a powerful sense of destiny in verse 1. It was from his mother's womb. I, I was a preacher when I was born. Isaiah had a powerful sense of identity. He is, in fact, verse 1 also says he was named Isaiah by God. Do you know what Isaiah means? It means Yahweh is salvation. How would you like that name? Hey, Yahweh is salvation. Would you come to the drugstore with me? You know, this is who he was. Isaiah was a powerful communicator. I mean, when he preached, it affected things. It didn't come drooling off his chin onto his shirt. He was like a, a sword. It said, I was a sharp sword. I was like a polished arrow. And yet, I am experiencing no results. There is no response here. And so, what you see in verse 4 is this. I have labored to no purpose. Isaiah was disappointed with his life. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Somehow he had missed what God had told him on the front end in Isaiah 6. But here's the deal. There's a fifth thing about Isaiah. Isaiah was not aiming too high. He was aiming too low. Verse 6 says it this way. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the holy ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations, that my salvation may go to the end of the earth. How do we know that this is the answer? Well, it's tucked away in a small little phrase in verse 6, to light a thing, particularly if you wanted to zoom in on the word light. Some translations use the term small. If you understand the real meaning of the word light, you can unlock the real meaning of this verse that addresses Isaiah's disappointment and yours and mine. Let me ask you, what is the opposite of light? That would be heavy, would it not? When you call someone a lightweight, what are you saying? You're not talking about their physical weight, the physical weight of the person. You are referring to the force of his personality. In the Greek, the word for the opposite of this definition of light is the word glory. If something has glory, it has substance, it has weight, it has value, it is to be taken seriously, it is heavy. When the Bible says us, for us to glorify the Lord, it is saying, attribute to God His weight, His value, His substance. When we fail to glorify the Lord, we reduce Him to something less than He is, something smaller, something lighter. we just saying, show me your glory, show me your greatness, show me just how valuable you are. I'm I'm guilty of missing the greatness and the magnitude and the glory, the weightiness of who you are. For example, consider the difference in gold and aluminum. I mean, is anybody wearing an aluminum ring? 
I mean, we just don't do that, right? Except maybe somebody that gets an old, old uh, uh, pop top and sticks it on there, right? So no real ring of value is uh, aluminum. For, uh, gold is heavy. Gold is dense. Gold is costly. Gold has extreme value. A couple of years ago, my dad passed, and, and we had the, the joy and the misery of uh, cleaning up his house. Uh, and so actually, when Angela and I moved, we were thinking about that when we started throwing junk away so our kids wouldn't hate us when we, you know, uh, passed in. But this is an interesting thing. Amidst all of his stuff that he had left behind, in an end table by his sofa, my brother called me and he said, there is $40,000 worth of gold in this end table, stuck in this end table that was enclosed. And I had in my mind, you know, Acme bricks of gold, like stacked in there, right? I mean, that's not true. What it really was was just a bunch of gold coins that had a lot of value. You know why? Because it was gold, people. Gold has a lot more weight than you think, a lot more value than you think. So when we say, show me your glory, it's when we see the glory of God, we realize, oh my goodness. Aluminum, on the other hand, is light, abundantly available. Gold is costly. It's rare. Aluminum uh, foil is something you wrap your leftovers in and then throw it away after using it, right? Aluminum's cheap. It's expendable. It's light. It's without great density, substance, or value. Are you tracking with me? Most of our lives are being spent pursuing what we thought was gold, but it's really aluminum. We're aiming too low. And this is why we, like Isaiah, can be filled with grandiosity about what we're hoping for, have a great identity, great giftedness, and yet we are going after something that is too light a thing. And we find ourselves with a gnawing sense of disappointment about our lives. Isaiah had not discovered the full weight of his purpose. He was aiming too low. Can I ask you a question? Are you? I remember the first time it happened to me. I was reading the biography of Adoniram Judson. It was called To the Golden Shore years ago. He's one of the, first, uh, the world's first modern missionaries who suffered such great loss, imprisonment, torture, loss of two wives and three children, and yet God used his sacrifice to display God's splendor among the nations. Too light echoed in the chambers of my soul as I shook the bed with my sobs, reading in bed late at night, and I just hoped I wouldn't awaken my wife. At the time of all these tears, see, I was working for a large company in, Houston, in Fort Worth. I had a nice income, a nice car, a nice wife, four nice kids, a nice house, nice neighbors, nice ministry in our nice church. Life was nice, but it was too light. Nice, but too light. And so we quit our nice job, left our nice house, sold our nice car, and moved to Nebraska to plant a church. Nebraska. 
rhymes with Alaska. <laughs> when people ask me how long I was up there, I say 15 winters. In the wintertime, I would say, God, why do you hate me? I'm from the Houston area originally. It's not supposed to do this. And he would look at me and say, really? You want a re reassignment because of the weather? Really? See, a person's soul was never meant to be satisfied with nice. All our efforts to fill our souls with nice things are as temporary as our breath that fogs a window for a moment and then disappears. Most of what we pursue is just too light a thing. See, there is a thing which fills us. It satisfies the longing of our souls for more. And when we pursue this, God stops saying too light. Look again at the full force of verse 6. It says, it's too light a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob. That's what you've been worrying about. Uh, Isaiah, and you're disappointed in that one, and bring back those of Israel I have kept, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, the nations, the Gentiles, the nations, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Oh my goodness, a light for the Gentiles, for the Gentiles? Now we read right past that and go, yeah, amen, that's awesome, but Isaiah Think about in his day. This was a very confusing thing to a good Israelite. When they recalled the narrative of their history, they recalled that God instructed them when they entered the land of Canaan to do what? To completely exterminate certain nations because they were so evil. Gentiles were the bad guys of every story in history for them. A light for these guys? Gentiles were outsiders. One of the prayers commonly prayed by the devout was this, God, thank you that you made me not a Gentile. To have contact with a Gentile was to be made unclean. Unclean meant cut off, disqualified to live in community with God or the people of God. In verse 6, it says, it's too light a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob. There is a larger story afoot here. Isaiah, the story you're engaging in is too light. There is a grand story I'm writing, and it will not go far beyond what you imagine. It will go far beyond what you imagine. It is a good thing that you are doing, but it's just too light. And that is the difference in your disappointment. Because you're doing what I told you to do. Isaiah, the man who is destined from birth, a polished stone, whose mouth is like a sword, says at the end of the day, man, I was in danger of completely missing the point. I felt like my life was pointless until I realized there's something bigger, there's something heavier, something weightier. I want you to do more than raise up the tribes of Jacob. I want you to be a light to the world. What is he saying? So this is the surprise pivot in this passage here. All of us, are you ready for this? Just get All of us church people have a little Isaiah in us. All of us pastors have a little Isaiah in us. I remember the first time I heard the Lord whisper too light regarding my church. 
I was doing a pretty good job of raising up the tribes of Jacob, collecting a lot of nice people sitting around trying to get nicer. <laughs> really nice. I was still chasing, though, aluminum. I had the wrong scorecard in my head. And this is what happened. Even though our, grew, our church grew, and we actually saw conversion growth. In, in Nebraska, there aren't a lot of, like, really good non-denominational people or not even any Baptists around up there to kind of scrape away. It's like, no, you had Lutherans and Catholics that had been that for the last five generations. And so if you were going to scratch out a church, it was going to be out of the people that were not already convinced. Oh, my goodness. But I still found that I was chasing aluminum, and therefore I was often disappointed. I was generally asking this question. How can this city help me better with making this a great church? I was aiming too low. I was asking the wrong question. You know, if you're not asking the right question, you don't get the answer to what you really need, right? I remember when I began to ask a different question. I was hired as a church planting pastor at this church in Austin that was committed to planting churches. In fact, their slogan was every man, woman, and child. Every man, woman, and child in every nook and cranny of this city, we are going to saturate it with the gospel so that every person here has a chance to either accept it or reject it because they heard the gospel from the lips of someone from our movement. When I first heard that, I was cynical. And I was talking to this consultant that had introduced me to them, and I said, really? Do they really think that? And he laid down his fork, and he looked me right in the eye, and he said, John, they are dead serious on this, and if you are not, you should not come here because you're going to be miserable here. Oh, man, that's all I needed. When I heard that it was real, I thought my chest was going to explode. And so I began to ask a different question. How can we, not how can we become a bigger, better church? How can this city help me make a great church? I began to ask a different question. How can my church make this a great city, a city of God? This crazy church in Austin, they thought the city of Austin needed all sorts of churches from every tribe, every denomination in our city. And they were willing to step out of their sectarian roots as a Bible church and start helping as many churches as they could to plant churches. And on top of all that, we helped, uh, those we helped, we planted a network of nearly 40 churches of our own tribe in about a decade. How can my church make this a great city, a city of God? And what if even that was too light? What if the real question became, how can we shine the light of God's glory to the remotest part of the earth? How can we renew and restore not only greater Houston, but the whole world by the gospel? Because the gospel was meant to change everyone and everything. Acts 1.8 records that place in history where the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy began to take hold. It was that place in history just after Jesus has been murdered by wicked men. 
They nearly beat him to death. They had him drag his own cross to a city crossroads in a public space like the Walmart parking lot. They stripped him and nailed him to a cross and people spit on him and mocked him until he died. And were it not for Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they would have thrown his body into the city dump with all the other garbage and criminal corpses where the birds would have picked at his flesh. And they did this to God for you and me. This is what Jesus did for you, not just so you could be a better person. Listen, when that truth really lays hold of you, Jesus, you change everything. You are asking for everything out of me. Then the gospel begins to mean something more than a way to become more psychologically well integrated, more than a way to just be nicer. No, the gospel, when it really lays hold of you, it changes everything. Look at Acts 1.8. These are the very last words of Jesus. These are the great pivot in history where God's promise to Isaiah, given 700 years earlier, is made good. He makes this promise. His disciples have said, hey, are you about to wrap everything up? And he says, look, that's, for, that's between the Father and, you know, you, you guys don't need to worry about that. This is what you need to know is next. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you're going to be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. The gospel is intended to change everything. And this is how, number one, the gospel involves power. Jesus begins by saying, you're going to receive power. In fact, you need to wait here until the power comes. We received the Holy Spirit not so we'd have a supernatural experience. If God gives you power, he gave it for you to use. Power is like electricity. Until it is used, it just sits there in a generator, in a battery, right? The word for power is the word dunamis. It's the same word from which we get the word dynamite. The power of God is meant to have an impact. You can have a wonderful $800 iPhone, but without a charger, it's not long before it's worthless. All that is regnant, it, it resides in that thing is nothing without the power, right? For a particular purpose and this is it the gospel involves a change of identity you will be my witnesses not just you will witness you will be my witnesses there's going to be a transformation in you that changes everything about you in such a way that you can't stop talking about this when Peter received the Holy Spirit the gospel laid hold of him he was transformed from a cowardly disciple who denied Christ turned tail and ran, fearing for his life, wept bitterly at the hideous thing he had done. And when the Holy Spirit came, he became a witness. In Acts 2, he preached one of the greatest messages that was ever preached in power. And there was instantly a church in Jerusalem with 3,000 new Christians. In Acts 3, he healed a man born lame at the temple stairs and it shook the city leaders. In Acts 4... They call him in and he faces down the same religious elite who had just a few weeks earlier crucified the Lord about 500 yards away. And Peter had to have remembered what he ran from. And at this moment, they said, if you've got to stop preaching this. 
We're not going to beat you. We're not going to throw you in jail, but you've got to stop. And you know what Peter said? He said, look, whether it's right in the sight of God, you be the judge, but we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. This is who we are now, and we dare not deny who we have become. When he spoke, they marveled at his fearless defense. They marveled because of his authority, knowing that he was unschooled and ordinary. You know what those words, unschooled and ordinary, you know what the word unschooled means? It's the word layman. You know how many times it's used in Scripture? Three times, of Peter, John, and Moses. You know what the Greek word for layman is? Idiotes. You know what that is? What kind of cognate that is? That's a cognate for idiot. They thought of Peter as an idiot. And you know what we do at our own peril, pastors, those of you who are pastors in here, me, is when we start looking at the ordinary, unschooled, not gone to seminary guys and say, idiotes, what do they know? But what they saw in Peter and John is Somebody that had been with Jesus, that had confidence and authority. He had power from the Holy Spirit, and he was a witness. So the gospel changes your identity. You have power, and you will be changed. You won't just occasionally share the propositions. It fuels your life patterns. It informs others of who you are and what God has done in you. But finally, the gospel involves a world-changing strategy. It's for the whole world. It says here in Jesus' last words, where, where were they going to be a witness? In Jerusalem, that's the woodlands. Judea and Samaria, that's greater Houston, the seven million people that are our opportunity. And then even to the remotest part of the world, that's the nations. This is more than Luke's outline to the, the book of, of Acts. This is what actually happened, folks. Now, our pastor, Jeff, I just love him. I haven't known him that long, but I just admire him so much. So when he calls out a particular vision that he is thinking about, well, we all tend to listen. You know why? Because he really walks with God. I heard about it, and I heard he got up here early and would pray quite a bit. And so I just thought, well, okay, uh, my wife's not here yet, so I'm just going to start getting up and showing up at the office and just see if I can beat him to work. And so I got up at 4.30 and got here at 5, first morning, and, and he, I got, walked up, and everything was dark in there, and all of a sudden I see this wild man down the hall, and he says, who is that? Uh, and he said, oh, John, come on in. He'd already been there for about 30 or 45 minutes. And so I got up the next morning, same thing. The next morning, same thing. Next morning, same thing. That man spends time talking to God, and he talks out loud. It's just really cool. But when he, when he talks to us, we want to listen because we think he's probably talking to God about things that we should probably pay attention to. But this is what he said one day. He started, he kind of made an off comment, but then he said this. I think we could plant 100 churches in the city. And then a little later, he sent me an email and said, I think we're aiming too low still. I 
I'm telling you, people, I've been around pastors forever. Most pastors, you know what they want to do? They want to collect as many as they can. They want bigger and better for them. How can this city make me a bigger, better church? Jeff's like, how can we make this the city of God? We will only do it if we stop collecting, we stop gathering, and we start scattering. Yeah. So how are we going to accomplish this? Three things. You're going to really be blown away by these. You know what they are? Love Jesus, journey together, bring hope to the world. Isn't that a radical new idea? What does it mean to love Jesus? Well, if you love him, you're going to follow him and obey him. What did he tell us to do? John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you'll do what I say. What did Jesus say to do? Make disciples of all the nations. So we're going to keep making disciples around here. People that know how to reproduce. This is why we are launching the Woods Edge Institute, a leadership training center that sees that our best church planners, you know where they are? They're not in Sacramento. They're not in uh, Timbuktu. You know where they are? They're sitting in the seats right in here. They just need to know how to love Jesus better. Journey together means that we learn to live in a neighborhood, live like a curate. What is a curate? We got all excited about this in Austin. We, we were with uh, one of the pastors of Holy Trinity Brompton Church in, in, in London, and we were talking about this excitedly. We were calling it circles of accountability. All of our church plants were drawing a circle of accountability, and we were owning the lostness of that particular neighborhood. And I, I noticed that he just didn't even blink. It was like, well, come on, give me some feedback. Why aren't you excited about this? He says, well... You're talking about a parish. And I went, oh, no, 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 that's what the Catholics do. And he said, well, yes. And it's been done for hundreds and hundreds of years. And sometimes we haven't done very well, but this is what a, a parish is. A parish is assigned to it a curate. A curate, the word curate is from the Latin word curare, which means to heal. A curate is responsible for every thing that's wrong in a geography, all the lostness, all of the injustice, all of the pain that's in this area. They are the owner of that. So I want to ask you this. What if you began to think about your neighborhood as your parish? How would it change the way you thought? Journeying together with other people to see this Re reality in Acts 17 26 Paul was talking to people far from God and he explained God this way God has ordained the exact places where men should live so that they would reach out and find him though he is not far from each one of us God has ordained where you're living on the street you're living why did he do that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you are to be the curate of your parish. You are the owner of your street. Did you know this? Did you know that anything less than that is too small a thing for your life? Finally, bring hope to the world. That means we're going to plant churches. We're going to plant as many as Jeff says. I'm telling you, I've got to live a long time 
in order to see what he wants to do. But our city is such an amazing opportunity. There are more than 140 different languages in this city. And you know, you know how many white people there are in this city? Only 37% people. 37 other percent are Hispanic and uh, 17% are black and 8% are Asian. And I believe that God is saying, if you will not go to the world, then I will send the world to you. Houston is incredibly diverse. So where is the light most needed? Do we really need more light in a well-lit room? No. Where do we need light? The darker the realm, the, more, the, the smallest light makes a difference. You don't have to be Billy Graham. You just have to be willing to step into the dark place and light a match. And that's your life. That's the glory of God that rests upon you. Can I tell you how this truth has impacted Angela and me? Hey, I, you know, most of my friends say, what in the world? Why did you move? You sold your house. You left Austin. You had all these friends here. You've invested in all these people. You have all these sons in the faith all over the city. They love you. They want you to stick around and finish the job here. And say, like, well, I'm sorry. That's too small a thing. I left the familiar. I left a son and a granddaughter in Austin. Only those of you who have sons and granddaughters understand the weight of that. But it was too small. I could have just coasted in and stayed in a beautiful city near at least one of my children. But it was too light. And so we sold our home, left our friends, left our son and granddaughter because we felt like it was too light. I want to tell you people, what Woods Edge aspires to do is not too light for us to give up our dearest treasures Oh, friends, the joy in life, no matter where you find yourself today, is in letting the gospel take hold of you. Jesus died for me to change you and make you his witness and go wherever he leads you. So what is my part supposed to be in this? I don't know exactly, but I do know this. You may supposed to plant a church, or you may supposed to go to the ends of the earth somewhere. But this is what I know for sure for all of us. God, you placed me in this neighborhood, and I am its curate. I am a witness. Friends, the gospel invites you and me into a level of transcendence that satisfies our deepest longings. It will not be light. All you have to do is light your own match. Let's all stand for prayer. Lord, speak to your people. Every one of us has a different thing that you have revealed. Your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirits, of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Oh, Lord, we open our hearts to you. We open our minds to your truth, our wills to your way. Have your way in us, in Jesus' name.